we go. And we are live. Welcome to the customer data platform buzzword support group. <laughs> I, <laughs> I am your I am your therapist, John Reed. Uh actually, no, just kidding. This is the um the Nicole and Liz show. Welcome. What? What's up, John? Thanks, John. How you doing? Yeah, thanks for crashing my show. I'm not sure if I'll get it back anytime soon, but <laughs> the I good news we'll... is that we don't have the password, so we we can only yeah. join. That's true. That's true. So, Streamyard is a bit go. of a mystery to us still. So yeah. give us a week. Yeah. So anyway, for those of you who are watching, this is the uh, a chance to participate on all things CX with Nicole and Liz. But I want to talk specifically about a couple of. Of, of blogs that they have authored in the past. Um, this is part of uh, my new series that I call blogs that matter or like blogs that you're an idiot if you didn't read when they came out or I haven't figured out the exact title yet, but it's the something like that. Blogs that stick in your craw. Blogs that Ooh. stick in your craw. Yeah, absolutely. And, and provocative as well. You know, blogs that, that made a lot of people think and react at the time. Um, so I, I love the idea of trying to dig into that a little further, but um, let's talk about the two of you for a sec though. Um, how, how would you characterize your your relationship? <laughs> we're, we're like we're like the two parts of a two part epoxy. I think yeah. you know, yeah. freaking frat. We, we really know you know we're really tight and and you know together we're pretty unbreakable. That's where I'm gonna go. So did you one. did you guys know each other before Liz joined Constellation? Did you already have this banter going or what happened? Okay, or did like did like Ray like go? Oh my god, what did I do? Or how did this I think probably story. Yeah. yeah, that may have been a little of that. Like it was so what was really funny was when I happened to be talking to Ray about making a shift from the CMO council, Nicole, unbeknownst of my conversations, reached out and was like, Hey, we should talk. Like, we should like, hey, let's like let's schedule a time to chat. So here I'm thinking, like, Oh, has she, like, has girlfriend heard something? Oh, dang. Like, what do we do? So she and I have this whole conversation at the very end of the conversation. I go, so don't know if you've heard this or not, but I might be joining Constellation. And she's like, what? <laughs> like, Although what? I will say, I will say Liz and I had a chance to really initiate our banter on an episode of Disrupt TV, even before <laughs> that. Mm-hmm. So, um, I was, I, you know, and in, in classic disrupt TV form, they only have one guest on at a time. So ironically enough, we had very asynchronous banter because each of us mm-hmm. was tweeting about the other's kind of spot on disrupt yep. TV. And, uh, I think that was, you know, the start of a beautiful friendship. Yeah, for sure. So you guys have overlapping, uh, topic areas that obviously bring a clash of ideas to the forefront, but what, what would, what would each of you say you're like passionate about in terms of the enterprise? Like what, is there something in particular that preoccupies you? I'll I'll start with that one. Um, Yeah, it is. It is the fact that customer experience in my view is very much an enterprise wide team sport. It is Mm. not the domain of any one leader or any one department and I think it's much more a philosophy than anything else, maybe an objective as well. It's certainly not a system and it's not a tool. And, you know, that is what probably frames everything I do more than anything else. Um, and, and I think that leaves a lot of room open for some pretty interesting and sometimes challenging conversations. But, I, you know, I, I also think that's the big problem that companies are trying to tackle because that's not necessarily how they've thought about this stuff in the past. 
And we always we always joke with people, especially for people who get to meet us together, like they don't know us separately, but they get to meet us together. Is that we're like the T in Constellation where Nicole talks about CX is this enterprise wide team sport. And then I just dive bomb those like calm, nicely laid out waters um, and talk about marketing's role in that, because I think that for a long time, the CMO has kind of had this idea that they own customer experience. Like it's this one thing that gets to be owned by an individual person. It's and, all about campaigns, right, Liz? Right. Yeah. Like we just, we, if we just string our campaigns together, we got customer experience, baby. Like that's all you totally. need to do. And it just, it, I think over time, the really smart, like the awesome CMOs have figured out like, oh, damn, okay, I don't own it, but I can be that smart person who's helping orchestrate it and just kind of handing out the sheet music to say, hey, we'd like it all to sound like this. What do we think? You know, so it's it's about that orchestration and not orchestration in the technology sense. Like, how do we get that mind share right? How do we get, you know, when Nicole talks about it as being like, that culture, that mindset, that that enterprise strategy, the CMO plays a role in that, but they're not the only one with those marching orders to the customer. So I, I think that for me, I tend to look at that functional marketing. But you know, when it when it comes to something that I'm super passionate about, it's like that um, I call it like that peanut butter and chocolate moment of when brand meets security because I cover both things. So I get super nerdy with security and like love digging into it. But I also think that. CMOs are probably the function in security that like get CISOs to like develop a Twitch, right? Where their eye starts going, right? Because we went out with our credit cards and are like, let's go buy stuff. Let's go bring things into our IT infrastructure. We're not going to tell anyone about it. Data. Let's buy it. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go buy a CDP and no one's going to know. And it's not going to worry anyone. And like the CISOs in the corner are like, no, please don't do this. You know, so... I, I tend to talk a lot and I get really super passionate about that idea of marketing and the CMO becoming the biggest champion for the CISO, right? Like go in, like I always tell people, like go in and ask two questions. Like, what do I do that pisses you off? And then how can I help? Right. Because if the marketer doesn't go in and have that conversation with security, none of this is going to work. Mm. Well, and there's a big privacy conversation right now too, with the, with the onset of the, the death of the third party cookie and all of that and yeah. the ad industry up in arms about that and provoking a very interesting conversation about the future of opt-in data. And that's right up your alley and Nicole's as well. So I think mm-hmm. we might get to that today. We, 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 might. Love that we might have a few things. We might have just a few yes. thoughts on that. Yes. Yeah. So I want to catch up on a few hellos. I want to say hi to Sandy, Thomas, Maureen, Josh, Greg, all regulars. Hey, hi. Um, up, Maureen, guys? Maureen says she love, love, loves Nicole's team sport perspective on CX. I hate her to say that. So. Yep. And, and then. <laughs> oh my and, God, you and, sent her a check too? Sweet. Yeah, exactly. And then we got Liz's uh, tough love for CMOs. It's going to definitely be fun today. And uh, Greg, keep the banter going. I'm not going to get back to your IT thing just yet. We will get back to it. Um, so, and oh, and by the way, I've asked. I've asked them a hard question too, which we're going to save for later, but you guys know what I'm talking about. Asked. I sent you a preview. I was going to ask you a tough yeah. question, but that's yeah. we're going to save that one for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so I want to I want to go back in time just a little to frame this conversation. I want to go back to a post that Nicole wrote, and uh, I'm trying to remember exactly when that was. But you can oh, it was January. You yeah, said 
which doesn't seem that long ago, but yet somehow was. <laughs> it feels like a lifetime in pandemic terms. But you, you wrote this post, it's time to set the record straight on customer data terminology. This post got a huge amount of uh, frenzied conversation. What <laughs> what motivated your, your desire to offer this post? Why did you want to force this conversation? Well, back to blog posts that stick in your craw. I think really what it came down to was I was just starting to get really... Not even just annoyed. I was truly in pissed off territory at the number and of ways and the frequency with which I hear these terms, first party, second party, and third party, with regard to customer data, just grossly, grossly misused. And and what I realized is that there are a whole lot of folks out there that have some vague interest in propagating this lack of clarity. So I, I really felt like there was a need to come out and say it and to, to call some of the the BS on how these terms are being used and also try to set the record straight a little bit on, on what they actually mean and what the limitations of those terms are. So, you know, I, I think the, the thing that really got to me the most was, and this will make Liz laugh no end, is particularly the term second party. And I think it's because you know, first party is relatively easy to understand as businesses. It's ours. It's the stuff we have. It's the stuff we collect. And third party is also, in a basic sense, relatively easy to understand. It's the stuff you get from outside, from some outside organization. And there's generally been this assumption that it seems that second party can be whatever the hell you want it to be. But the fact of the matter is, if you're talking about collecting data from customers, really, First party is you, the business, and second party is the customer. It's the customer that you're collecting stuff from. So just like when it comes to the voice, when you talk about writing, you know, there's first person and there's third person. There's a reason you don't ever hear about second person. It's because the second person is the reader, right? So it's the same with data. The second party is the customer. So don't tell me that your surveys, your customer surveys are second party data. Nope, you're collecting that data as a business. It's still first party data. Nope, second party is not your partners. No, that's actually technically still third party. It's from an outside entity that was not part of the direct interaction you had with your customers. Second party is also not, although it gets a little blurry here when you start talking to devs, second party does not mean data that comes from another system. Um, you know, it, if it's if it's collected by your organization, it's first party data. If it is not collected by your organization, it is third party data. And anything that the customer keeps that belongs to them is second party, but you'll probably never find it. Because anything that you directly ask them for, by definition, becomes first party data. So there we go. Anyway, what I will say as a way of kind of rounding that out, I think we tend to go down some rabbit holes with these terms. So really what I was trying to do in that blog post is clarify what those terms mean. And interestingly, and I've had several conversations with notably a couple of vendors about this who have used and misused some of the terminology themselves, is getting to an idea, and I have to credit um, Asa Willock and Aaron Davis of Adobe, because this is a conversation uh, with them, that actually maybe what we need to start talking about is something like data tiers instead of first party, second party, third party because there are different tiers of data. And this is something Liz and I spend a lot of time, and I like genuinely the, the daily phone calls that we have where we're talking about all kinds of different stuff. This is a subject that comes up very, very frequently. Often, often. We, we, need, <laughs> we need a different way of thinking about how to classify this data because 
part of what happens, and this is kind of a segue to the cookie list conversation as well, is, you know, what are the bits of data that you have a high degree of confidence in that you know is reliable and that you can use effectively? And there are different levels and tiers, you know, and there's there's some stuff that you can use that is highly reliable third-party data. There's some stuff that that isn't. Yeah, I like the t- <laughs> Yes, it can lead to tears. But I do mean T-I-E-R. Let Greg, your choice, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, you know, just to kind of kick it off here to a little bit more of a, of a discussion, we do need some way of classifying, I think, the fidelity and accuracy um, that we have in different types of customer data. And maybe we just need to set aside the first party, third party thing as long as we recognize that the big distinction is what is it that we collect directly that we have control over as businesses and what is the stuff that we're buying in from outside that we have to ask a lot more questions about depending on where it comes from and who it comes from. And I'll say one of the things that when we do talk about data that we talk about an awful lot and Nicole is always the first person to bring this up is the phrase to what end, right? Because it's, it, it, that's the big question. Like as, as we've all been debating like, Oh God, is it first party? Is it third party? Did it come from a brownie or a cookie? Like we get really wrapped up in that conversation. And I think we leave the to what end conversation almost as an afterthought as we're trying to jam it all into the campaign machine. Right. So the, the, we can collect it all. And, and if we're being super honest, We've all kind of been on this weird data decathlon, I like to call it. Like we've we've all been like, we're going to race to the top of data mountain. And so we're going to build the biggest mountain of data that we could possibly have. And there's a data decathlon that's happening. And at the end of it, someone's going to hand me a ribbon, like an AYSO participation medal. Because and that's I've really collected, what it is. Right. Like I've collected the best mountain of data ever. And, and like you get to the top of the mountain and we all kind of looked around and we're like, damn, so no one's here with like, no one's here with some orange slices and a metal. Damn. Yeah. Like, where's, where's the water cooler? Right. Like, <laughs> what, what? yeah. Like, does, no one's going to soak me with Gatorade right now. This is a bummer because we didn't, and we don't ask to what end. And so then we're like, well, the campaign has to go out. So what do we do? We take the entire mountain and we shove it into the system. And then we're like, that didn't work well because we didn't ask to what end, right? We didn't ask those questions. And, and I think we forget the fundamental principle that, Privacy, and, and Steve Wilson, our colleague at Constellation, talks about this a lot, right, is that privacy isn't about how much we should be collecting and how to secure it. It's how little we need to create meaningful moments of engagement, right? And so it's about the how little. And I think that's where people really start to fumble, and that's when they want to bring in second party. And I will just say, John, just for you, the next time someone says second party data and uses it wrong to Nicole in a conversation, Mm -hmm. I will take a screen grab and I will send you the photo because it's epic. There are some things I can't prevent from walking across my face quickly. No filter. None. Yeah. She got no filter for when someone says, and and it, it has happened a lot when people are like, we have a new solution in a marketplace for second party data. Liz, Josh thinks you need a snack. I really do kind of need a snack. Jam, Josh. cookie, brownie, chocolate, yeah, peanut butter, Josh orange slices, need- Gatorade, some McGill is a snack. Yeah, like Josh, Josh yeah. has figured this out in a very short amount of time that I that I kind of am snack driven. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie about that. I, yeah, this is the downside of not having in person events anymore. You know, like they usually have carefully choreographed snack tables about this mm-hmm. time of day. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, that's it. 
And I am that person who picks out all the M&Ms. I'm just... I'm just going to throw that out there. Like I will pick all the M&Ms out of the trail mix and bring it back to the table. I'll share it with everyone, but I'm still doing it. Greg says the data decathlon ends and magic analytics and pretty presentations. He's a Steve Wilson fanboy, and Greg, that's okay. A lot of us are Steve, Steve Wilson. Yeah, fanboys, we, are. So. we are. I'm a, I'm a fan of still, like I does. Does Greg need to be on our mailing list for our T-shirt company that we're going to start? I think maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's so, John. If you don't know about this already, Nicole and I are planning a side hustle of t-shirts that with like mm. people that we're fans of and maybe quotes, but like in cartoon characters, we had Primarily started around this, hair, you know? Yeah. Yes. Or facial hair, like hair yeah. or facial hair somehow involved. Um, Street Arvenbu, of course, being one of our first targets that we, we decided needed his own t-shirt. He really, he really was the inspiration initially. He and really we, was. we very rapidly expand, expanded from there. So yeah. There, well, there I, I look forward I look forward to seeing this on your LinkedIn profiles. Yeah. There's a whole. Congratulate Liz and Nicole on their new position. Side hustle. Thank you. Right. Thank you. It's still aspirational, but we'll get there eventually. I I, I very much look forward to that. Yeah. And, and we actually, uh, one of, one of our contributors to Diginomica published a post, Neil Raiden on data lakes and cloud data warehouses, and then get this data lake houses. So I think to your point around to what end now it's about, well, let's just, create a new super spiff place to dump this stuff in and then we're good. We have a data, data lake wasn't working, but a data lake house. Part of the point is what was the data lake supposed to do? I mean, really genuinely in the technology sense, data lakes are primarily meant to be a place where you stick it all that you could eventually get it back out in some form if you so chose. And I think Liz is absolutely right. And this is what we are both pretty fanatical about and it's great having Steve to sort of shine the light and show the way and, and keep us honest about this stuff too, because I think there's a there's an obsession when it comes to customers and customer experience that it is all about the massive, massive sets of data that you can collect. And it's all about volume of data. And there are certainly cases where having large enough data sets is important. You know, if you're trying to yep. understand and segment customers, particularly in a B2C organization around behaviors, that data definitely is important. And you need enough of it to be able to identify patterns and to identify patterns over time. But the fact of the matter is, I think where the real art comes in, and actually it helps to address a lot of the problems that Liz in particular spends a lot of time looking at, those those tricky security questions that marketing has a really big hand in, if not a lot of responsibility for, if you can really focus in on how little you need in order to be really effective, you solve a whole bunch of other problems when it comes to security, for one thing, but also data privacy, because then you don't have to worry about the the sort of surface area that you are open to some really significant security threats on, yeah. or just bad behaviors. I mean, that's that's the really big issue, I think, with data privacy in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. John's just so, trying. I, I see John trying to talk. We're like, no, stop, no. Yeah, I, well, I I warned the viewers that I might lose control of the show today. So we're like wind they, up toys. You just have to wind us up and let us go. I, John. I told him I might lose control. So it's fine. <laughs> but um, I I did want to ask you though, like when you when you talk about sort of you, you sort of imply that the these terms are being abused. What do you think is sort of driving? What is the motivation to blur the lines here? Like, why why do companies do this? What's what's behind this? blurring of the lines. I think sometimes you just, you, you parrot what you hear, 
right? And if I'm if I'm gonna kind of pick on mm-hmm. pick up any group, I think for a really long time it has been in the best interest of dare I say some vendors to make a lot of this sound super scary. Yes, right. And, exactly. and I mean, let's go back to the age of like, remember, big data. Like we called it big data. Like, oh my God, you gotta be worried about the monster that's gonna come and destroy your house. It's big data. And so we talked about that for a really long time, right? And and all the tools you needed to manage to harness big data. But then, well, all the vendors jumped into the big data pond to try to get everyone scared about big data. So then what did we call it? dirty data like remember those days where everyone wanted to talk about it's dirty data and it's dark data and I'm like but wasn't that part of big data too so then as we tried to kind of strip away the layers of that onion we kind of needed something to help resolve all the fear and loathing that we created around data and so suddenly a data warehouse a data lake someplace you know like on golden pond but in zeros and ones we needed something to sound manageable and buildable because we had all this dark, dirty, filthy, nasty, big data. And there's too much of it to do anything manually like we used to do back in the days of Excel right. spreadsheets. Yeah. yeah, like spreadsheets, yeah. people. Like, yeah, like remember like when your data like used to be your drawer? Like it was like your file drawer that you just opened oh, yeah. up and you yeah. stuck the printout of the Excel spreadsheet. Like that was, that was for, and, and you know what? Here's the sad reality. There are lots of organizations out there that that is still their data strategy. The drawer just turned into Dropbox, right? And so we just shoved it all in Dropbox and then we called it like, that's my data lake. No, it's, it's still a, it's still a pile of stuff you don't know how to use. So I think that a lot of, a lot of this revolved around, we had to come up with a language to address the fear language we had already created. But I think really smart CIOs, and I love when I get to see this, and I think a lot of our colleagues that get to do things like the cool things in Supernova Wars, and when we start to talk about data strategies and a lot of the stuff that Doug talks about, you start to see people take a step back and really think about the strategy from the perspective of what needs to be available, what needs to be accounted for, and what needs to be actionable. And I think when they start looking at that strategy, suddenly the construct of a data lake, the construct of the data warehouse starts to make a whole lot of sense for the business users that are focused on the accessible part, right? You've still got Debbie and Bob down in risk who want to know where it is, right? Like they they still have access to it. And under right. what circumstances? Right, exactly. Yeah. Like Debbie and Bob are still going to walk into your office and be like, they can't get that. HIPAA, you know, like that just, it's still going to happen. Please fill out this 25 row spreadsheet to explain to me who needs access to this data and why. Yeah. Right. So, and that, that does still happen. But it, but it is interesting too, because I think, you know, Liz, Liz is right on the money. And the next thing that becomes the interesting challenge is then how do you integrate this data across systems in ways that really do make it operational? And so right. we've got all these different levels of requirement for really effective data management and data strategies. Part of that is on an analytics level. And that is clearly a big, big deal. How do you make sense of it? How do you make sense of what you have? How do you know which aspects of what you have you really need? What are the gaps that you still need to fill? And, you know, can you find that from outside data? Can you find it from other sources internally that you haven't really looked at yet? I mean, these are all really, really critical aspects of 
generating the useful insights, making sure everybody across the organization has access to them, making sure they can get their own perspective on them in a way that's going to help them make decisions and do their jobs, whether they're in customer service or in sales or in marketing or in you know business strategy or product development. Yep. All of these are very different perspectives on the same the, really the same data sets ultimately, and often the same insights, but with different purposes. So that becomes a really essential part. And that's just on the analytics side. Then you start getting into making this operational. And whether you're talking about automating actions or recommending decisions that people might take and making it easy and quick for them to go and do the things operationally that they need to do, you know, facilitating the communication across different teams and different departments these become the really important aspects. And this is where that, that question of to what end, what are you trying to do and why becomes really, really important. And I think that is ultimately the guiding principle on a lot of this stuff. And if you ask those questions really genuinely and deeply, you often find there's stuff that you don't need. And that's really right. liberating too. I mean, maybe you, maybe you keep it, maybe you put it in the data lake because, you know, the things like log data, you tend to want to keep as, you know, insurance, just in case it tells you something that you didn't anticipate at the time. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it becomes part of business critical operations. Right. Cool. All right. We have a few questions. questions. We have a few questions. Uh, If you joined late, you're 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 at the Nicole and Liz show today uh, with with (laughs) With our special guest, John Reed. Yeah, (laughs) Occasionally dropping in will be John Reed. Uh, So so Greg asks, isn't the general approach to collect more data because it is better by default? In my privacy by design groove, I want to. I think that's backwards. I wanted to add to Greg's question and just say, in a semi-snarky manner, aren't you kind of cutting off AI at the knees because we're talking about like, oh, we need to feed these these machine learning algorithms need these deep data sets. Yeah, but but I think it's back to you need enough. You you don't yeah. you don't need endless and infinite amounts of data. And you know, real, realistically, good machine learning models are typically fairly specifically bounded. It gets a little yeah. bit different yeah. when you're talking about AI-based training, which is more self-directed. But even then, I think the real question is, you know, what are the patterns that you want to try to identify? Or what is the scope of patterns that you want to try to identify? And and what is the data that you need to supply then? in order to do that. And it is not life, the universe and everything. Had the motor speedway startup. Yeah. Here. No helicopters for me today. So it's a little quiet on Hey Liz, we have a little bit of a echo that I think might be coming from your side. I don't know if you have a earpieces or something, but um, no, I don't know. But gosh anyway. knows. Who knows? Okay. Sorry. Well, let's see what happens. We'll, we'll just keep going. Um, question for both. What percentage of large enterprise CMOs are asking the right questions about a healthy data roadmap? Are they open to doing things differently? Are there C-suites open? Maureen. Oh, Maureen asking the hard questions because it's I like, know. I, I want to be like, are single digit answers appropriate in that? So so I think the the honest answer here is, I think I would say estimating 80 to 90% of CMOs are open to doing different things with data. Because the reality is they know that what they're doing now isn't getting to the business goals they have tomorrow, right? So, but I think that uh, that where that switches in the are they asking questions actually comes back to a bigger issue of do they have the right definition of what data is and what it means for them and for the organization and for the customer. And the reason why I say that is because 
oftentimes when you talk to a CMO and you ask them about data and data strategy, what they're actually talking about is metrics and tactical metric data and not actual what we would consider to be customer or experience or even business relevant data. They're talking tactical data. So they're talking the data, the metrics that you get out of how did that campaign run? What did my media mix do? Analysis. Performance yeah. analysis, right? They're they're yeah. talking about what their marketing operations needs to become effective and efficient. And that's all really important data. That is not to discount that, but that is not all, right? And so I think what we're seeing is really smart CMOs begin to, again, going back to what Nicole said, they're looking at not only tiers of data, but they're looking at tiers of analytics, right? So do we have the analytic tier that starts to look at the business goals that you have. So driving growth, increasing, you know, velocity, all those things are informed by the business. And those are all going to be KPIs. They're all going to be based on data that comes from the business and from the customer, right? Then they have that kind of marketing strategy layer that's just one tier down that is informed by marketing, right? Yes, you're going to get different signals and cues that come out of sales, support different areas of the organization, but that strategy tier is largely going to go for marketing's goals and marketing strategy moving forward. And then under that, then you have the tactical tier, right? That's what came out of my MarTech stack, right? Like that's what did Pardot tell me today, right? That's the tactical stuff. That's not necessarily informed by what's happening in operations or the CFO. You know, that's that's not coming from the business. It, it might be informing how well did we do, but that's tactical performance. And we can't we can't get away with anymore thinking that all three of those tiers is the same data or is even the same definition of it, right? We have to get real crisp in what we mean by it and where it comes from and and how much of the team from Nicole's definition of that team sport, how much of the team inserts data into those different layers and into those different tiers? Because you know what, sales, they're gonna be like, yeah, that's great. Those tactical numbers are awesome. But like what's happening at the strategy level? What have you done for me lately? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, the, the, the other observation I'd make is, and I think this is back to the kind of spirit of this being a team sport and the mindset that that requires from an internal kind of communication and collaboration standpoint. I've been really impressed by what switched on analytics teams are doing. And those analytics teams, might or might not sit in marketing. Often they're in sales. Often they're in a business operations team, actually, that's really focused on the core business metrics, like how much are we selling? How much money are we making on what we sell? How can we do more of that? How can we increase our margin? You know, how can we sell more to our existing customers? All of those questions that are intimately uh, related to what marketing is doing. And I, I think the really switched on analytics teams are the ones that are getting very good at anticipating the types of things that are really helpful to marketing and, and offering them up insights and, and self-service approaches to do that. Um, and are also bringing a lot of the, the critical thinking and analysis and, you know, actively soliciting that from marketing and from other departments to help shape what they can get out of the data. And that that's actually pretty, pretty cool in my book. Yeah. I, I, the ones that I love seeing are also the ones that are having fun with it. Right. Like data isn't meant to be something that we're like, oh, I've got to go look at the data. Right. Right. Like you can ask some really cool questions, you know, and (laughs) and that's the thing. That's that's the part that I get really interested in, even with really large B2C businesses that have 
vast customer bases, you know, you might find a customer segment of 50 people that actually turns out to be really, really critical for your business success. How do you identify what that is? And how do you then figure out how to meaningfully engage with those 50 people in the right ways? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of stuff that I think most businesses really want to answer. And how do you save those 50 people from the misery of your freaking call center? Or, or, or getting spammed of, by the weekly emails, right? Right, right. Yeah. like getting, you know, how do you save them from the misery of the emails that you've been sending them because you assumed they were part of another segment, right? So I, I think it's about, it's about interrogating data differently, but it's also about not having the fear that you're going to get punished because you asked a different question, right? Yeah. I, I remember talking to, I remember talking to a head of analytics for a really large media firm several years ago, and he said the funniest thing to me. He said, listen, the idea of unleashing a group of marketers into my data and analytics solutions is kind of like the idea of handing my three-year-old really sharp scissors and saying, run, run through the room. And I was like, oh, that's like, God, like that's a painful thing to hear. Like, wow, we're, we're kids running with scissors. But the reality is we shouldn't have to feel like something so horrible is going to happen if we go and create a different query with different data sets in whatever analytic solutions we're running, we should be able to be, to ask those wild and crazy. What if questions like, what if we just stopped doing that? Like, like, what if, like, what if we just stopped investing in that thing over there? Like, what do we, what do we think would happen and having the capacity and the runway to actually investigate that? is it should be fun. It shouldn't be so painful. It's like, it's one of the reasons why we always kind of laugh at like the events around analytics where everyone's like, we shall now talk about a different query off of 19 data sets. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, let me get closer. Well, for a while. Right. Right. Let's, let's talk about creating this and we're going to all look like hostages, like data is super scary and it's going to come punish. Like, no, like be Josh James jumping off a mountain. Like, go do it. Like, have fun. Like, go, go ask a question. Because I think the reality is, is that, you know, our customers get that we've kind of overanalyzed all this stuff. (laughs) Like, they get it. Just to to circle it back to your earlier question, John, about, you know, why have these terms come to be misused? And Liz is right on. And I, I am in violent agreement. I think there's been a vested interest on the part of particularly a lot of vendors to sow additional confusion and really to make people feel like they're dumb for not already knowing this stuff. And part of the reason I wrote that blog post was because I think these are questions that actually a whole lot of people have, but they're totally petrified to ask because they're going to be acknowledging that they don't already know. And, you know, I think that is fundamentally one of the big things we need to get over in all this stuff is, is number one, the assumption that either people know more than they do or they know far less than they do and that it's not okay to ask questions about this stuff to clarify understanding. And, and to ask questions to learn more, frankly, because, you know, this is this is an area that has evolved so much over the last decade. And I think it's totally fair to acknowledge what we as individuals do and don't already know and what we'd like to find out about. And to do that in a way that that is in the spirit of and, and I'll go back to Greg's you know great answer to his own question, you know, the spirit of seeking out feedback and wanting to ask questions and inviting external questions, we all have something to contribute to making this data really useful and effective and to doing right by it and to, be, to do right by our customers in using their data effectively, but respectfully. Um, we all have stuff to contribute, but we all have our own areas of knowledge too. 
And it's only by bringing these different pieces together. Wait a minute, just like any other aspect of business operations that we're actually going to be successful at what we want to try to do. Well, and I was struck by what you were saying, Liz, about asking, asking these curious questions or new questions or, and, and I think one of the problems historically has been that we really haven't had the proper platforms to ask those questions. So we spent so much time trying to gather the data and agree upon the fact that we actually have a, a source of truth that we trust that we could never really get around to asking those questions in the first place. And even with the modern shiny tools, the vendors are so proud of without all the discipline work on the back end, the ruthless hard work, then none of that's possible. But it seems to me that's sort of the, the hopeful piece of this discussion is that there is an opportunity now to, to, to spend more time asking those questions and less time administrating the aspect of getting to those questions. Right. So yeah, that's, for sure. That's the turning point, potentially, if organizations can seize it. Um, uh, uh, Greg wants to ask uh, Nicole, I'll put you on the spot here. He wants you to give him two key characteristics of of a switched-on analytics team. So, Well, but I'll tell you, the next thing he did in his next comment, John, is answer his own question, which I thought was great because I think he's right I like this. Turn this right back on him. All right, Greg, well, there's your answer. Because we took too long to get to it. So there we go. Just wait. That's yeah. a great strategy. Um, no, I, and I think Greg is right on. I think really switched on analytics teams are the kind of people who want to know stuff. And they are experts in their domain, which is understanding the tools and understanding the nature of the different kinds of data that they're analyzing and how to put the pieces together. But they're they're coming up with with critical thinking and, and their own questions, and they're seeking out those questions from elsewhere. So it's really seeking out that kind of business expertise and that business knowledge and really wanting to figure out how what they do can help to facilitate other parts of the business. So that's one. Um, and I think the other thing is being open to experimentation and, and actually trying to be the instigators of some of those experiments as well, because that's that's where the interesting stuff comes from. It's, to business, it's, it's asking those questions and, and having having this sort of the latitude and feeling free to do that and recognizing that that's actually a huge part of your job and not just, you know, processing stuff and checking things off your list that you got done. I'm going to add a third. Esteban says, am I too late? John is still talking. Maybe what are you talking about? Esteban, I've talked for like one minute in my entire show. We gave him like 30 seconds and then we were like, they've been, they've been, they've probably had 37 minutes of the 38. So I don't know you're going to have to wake up, dude. Um, so, so what's your third one? I'm going to add one more in that I think really switched on analytics teams have figured out that there are great tools out there that help them automate the things that people ask for the most so that they can actually spend more time helping answer those questions, right? Because I think I think a lot of times analytics teams get treated like they're like the waiter at the restaurant and you just sit down and you're like, I would like to order all of these dashboards, right? Like here, let me order a hundred dashboards that I don't want to, like that no one's ever going to use. And so they then have to spend all that time fulfilling that order and it sucks, right? So I think really switched on analytics teams are also helping educate whether it's, you know, I see it the most in marketing, right? Where you've got these great analytics teams that are like, yeah, I could answer that question for you. I could give you that dashboard, but what if we actually started with the question you're actually trying to answer first, right? So if the question is, okay, why why didn't that campaign work? Hey, maybe we create a different dashboard that looks at these five different things 
versus the things like they're they're kind of helping be a, a little bit of a tour guide at the zoo. Like if there's a lake house, the like the really great analytics teams are the ones that are like, let me show you around in this virtual tour rather than the ones that are just sitting there like, yes, let me fulfill your dashboard order. Yeah. So stay behind a fence, but enjoy as right. much of this area as you want to. No, and I, I think you're right. Liz, it, but this is back to the self-service point, too. I think the really good analytics teams are, can anticipate the needs where they can help not just answer questions, but show particularly their marketing brethren where they can go and find answers for themselves and where they can ask their own questions. And, you know, maybe not everything, probably not, hopefully not everything, but they can do a lot for themselves. And I think, you know, that again, really fosters the spirit of collaboration that is, you know, let's face it, the only way that businesses are going to be able to deal effectively in this information age, this onslaught of data there's no time for command and control. Like we all we all have to be collaborating together. We have to know what the big objectives are. We have to understand our individual roles within that. And we have to be empowered to work together with the right tools and information to do it for ourselves. Okay, so uh, we got to take a quick break here based on Esteban's comment because Nicole and Liz did prepare some little tributes for me. Esteban says Nicole is christening her whiteboard for us. Nice. You want to show off your whiteboard there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You might have to change views, John, so we get the wider shot. But yeah, yes, so I, I've got my one, two, three up here. Tears, parties, who knows? And Excellent. then, of course, you know, it's our it's our ode to you, John. Excellent. Oh, that's beautiful. And then Liz, she's got kind of a mini whiteboard so as not to be left out. Excellent. And we, and we Gretzky and, in the background. And we've got Gretzky in the background. And Liz, you're Are muted. You unmute, Liz? Liz, we got you on mute for sure. I know. Look at that. Way to go. We My got, God. You can't yeah, silence I'm me. You know. I'm interpreting. I'm lip reading and I'm saying what I think this is saying. Just for John, I was going to go back into like my old career used to have in my office box to find uh, all of my forum boxing show covers. I have a, I actually have a, a boxing frame from one of my events. And one of them was a, a Hill Hearns, a Hill Hearns event that we did at, uh, at forum boxing. And then another one was, I, I have a great poster board of the very last fight we did with Juan Manuel Marquez. He used to be one of our marquee fighters. So forum boxing was all lightweight, you know, featherweights, you know, not a lot of heavyweight stuff. Those were, you know, that wasn't our jam, but you know, Brian says your pizza box, Brian. <laughs> Brian says your whiteboard looks like a pizza box. Well, that would oh. that would have satisfied my snack issue. So thanks, yeah. Brian. Now I'm talking about now I'm thinking about pizza. Brian, come on, man. But no, it's like the sassy one that has like the cork board at the bottom. Like it and it's got a magnet too, John. School and like pin in pieces of paper. Right. right. But I did put hearts and flowers on it just for you, John. I thought you'd like that. Excellent. Thank you. Yes, hearts and flowers, always good for mm -hmm. me. Uh Esteban says uh shoot from the hip analytics. He likes the concept. So it's kind of like shoot from the hip marketing. What could go yeah, wrong? That should, yeah. be our, that should be our next paper, Liz. There you go. Shoot, I like shoot that. From the hip like analytics. That. Yeah. We're just gonna pluck that from it. We're gonna pluck that from Esteban. Thank you. Bye. I like it. I can picture some really good graphics going along with that. Then, well, yeah. I am now the internal graphic designer for Constellation Research. Totally. <laughs> oh, and and by the way, uh, Nicole and Liz are the authors of a new big idea report. So they got like these big ideas. Um, this is behind the constellation wall. So you would have to be a client to read the whole thing, but maybe you guys want to give us a quick preview of 
digital optimization, a new strategy and system for growth. That's quite a mouthful there. <laughs> we don't do it by half. Yeah, I know. Yeah, no. Nicole had the best summary earlier, so I'm going to let you rattle that one off. All right, all right. So, so basically, what we're saying here is, you know, whether or not your business is a digital native, the big challenge for any company these days is recognizing that you need to manage your digital products on par with how you manage all your tangible products. So, regardless of what it is, you know, product service, we're using that in a very broad sense here. You know, so if your job is, you know selling hamburgers, you still are using digital products like your app, you know, like the the online menu, all of those sort of digital experiences are actually a route to selling the tangible stuff, the hamburgers that you actually make money on. And if you aren't thinking about and managing those digital products in the same way, although with a very different set of tools and data and insights, then you're just not going to be effective at selling hamburgers. And that is the simple reality of where we are today. So this piece is really sort of laying out the problem set and what we advise in terms of how to think about this, how to approach it, and also what you really need in the tooling to do that effectively. Because, you know, ultimately with hamburgers, you got to you got to buy the ingredients, you got to figure out that you've got enough resources to put the hamburgers together. And then at the end, you see how many you've sold. You know, and were you close to estimating what, how many you sold per day and what you anticipated selling per day? Uh, with digital products, you've got to have a lot more intervening analysis to understand what the trends are so you can make adjustments really quickly. But it, and I think it's also about the, the life cycle that has to go into that product, right? So I think a lot of times with digital products, we tend to think of them as like, I built an app. And we're done. Right. Yeah. yeah, built an app. And they don't, and you don't use the same rigor and kind of thoughtfulness around intelligence bringing back into your product evolution as people are very used to doing with their products, right? If you're releasing a software round, you're very used to going in and looking for those points of friction, understanding your analytics and your intelligence around how have people reacted to it? How are people using it? Are people using your, you know, your solution in a way you never thought it was going to be used before? And then changing those function and feature sets to match what people need. If you've introduced a burger that jalapenos were on and no one's eating it or everyone's picking the jalapenos off, well, what do you go do? You go and change the way the burger is marketed. You go and change the way the burger is introduced. Maybe you take it off the menu. Yeah. Right. You know, people don't necessarily think of that with their digital products because they don't think of the app as a product. They think about it as a vehicle or a channel. So we kind of in the paper walk through what that evolution is like and how that has changed the way digital products are actually thought of within an organization so that you go from being kind of a channel centric business into being a digital business, wrapping all of those intelligence points around the tangible product you're selling to really now being a digital product led business. Um, And how do we optimize that path and how do we flow that through? Okay, well, I just saved everyone a Constellation subscription, so that's awesome. Uh, Ray, Don't tell Ray's going to be really, Ray's yeah, gonna exactly. be really happy with me about that. No, no, but the check pictures out the, are worth reading the whole document. Honestly, it's worth it for the graphics. So yeah, we can't show you the graphics here. So yeah, definitely go get the go get the full report. But thanks for the preview. Uh, I do want to get on another topic that Liz, I, I'm going to guess you have some feelings about this one. Oh gosh, uh, which is our cookie-less future, and. <laughs> The recent, which we provided some coverage on Diginomica on this topic. But, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because when Google made the announcement, I was a little bit blah because 
Google is making this big deal about how Chrome's not going to support third-party cookies, but they're not the first browser to do it. And I wasn't really caring so much, but I will say this. Uh, in, in the Adobe uh, Summit pre-brief I was on this week, I asked about this, and they said that based on their surveys, there's a pretty large freak-out percentage of folks who are who are asking Adobe pressing questions about this issue. So for whatever reason, whether whether it's true that like Google really created this or it's just another domino to fall, it, it has gotten people thinking. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts. So, yeah, um, the, the Google announcement was interesting, right? Because it was first framed of like, we're killing the third party cookie. We're not killing our cookie, but we're killing the third party right. cookie, right? So if you want this intelligence, if you want all of this knowledge about our browsers, our users, our people, you're going to come, dare I say, and get a first party cookie. First and not, party you know, data. Yep. Here we go. Still yeah, right. Okay. So like, here we go again. Like, where's the second party cookie in the yeah. customer's mouth? Like, stop it. Like, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. So I think the people, I think the original freak out, where the biggest ripples of the freak out were coming from were quite frankly out of the advertising world. And that is understandable, right? Um, oh, Esteban and your flock of seagulls. You didn't need to, don't, don't go there with me, my friend. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I think that when you start to talk about what is happening with the cookie? It really addresses the darkest part of marketing, which tends to be the laziness factor that we've kind of gotten into. If I'm being super honest. I've built everything around third-party trackers. Right. Like, like I'm just going to track the hell out of everyone so I can convince myself that this buy was the most efficient buy it possibly could have been. Right. Is that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go and just do nothing but programmatic buying based on a third-party cookie, based on all of this data that I get there so that I can prove that this past invoice was spent the most effectively. And, and I think the reality is, is that we actually created a whole lot of bad experiences by just thinking of third-party cookies as some kind of Ron Popeil, like set it and forget it chicken maker. Like, oh, we could just, we could just take our creative and put like 19 different versions of it in the programmatic engine. And the third-party cookie is going to solve the rest. Well, no, it, like it, it, no, set it. Forget, it didn't happen because what ended up happening was we served ads to people and it pissed them off, right? So think every time you went online and we're like, oh, those are the shoes I bought a week ago and now they're 10% off. Like, like, yeah, I don't like, ooh. I don't need any more freaking suitcases. You know what I mean? It's like, right. Like I bought, bought, I bought, I bought that my one. Well, my, yeah. fa- my other favorite, and I, Liz, I always think of you when I see this because I know how much you love programmatic advertising, but uh, anybody watched internet TV? You know, I mean, the interesting thing is what ads get served up to you. And I'm quite impressed that, you know, we get some in Spanish. Hey, that's cool. You know, we're a fairly multilingual household. The Vietnamese ones, little off the mark. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm intrigued. I'm kind of interested to see what advertisers are advertising to the Vietnamese (laughs) language community. But how I ended up on that programmatic list, I don't know. But that's part of the issue, right? That's part of the issue with both the third party trackers and the fact that a lot of this stuff is just frankly not very accurate. Yeah. And we used it for stalking, right? We didn't, yeah, we right. weren't tracking, we were stalking. And, 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 and at some point we have to admit that about ourselves, that we right. were trying to stalk our prey because, and it, and it falls back into what I often refer to as marketing's heritage as a culture of being like a culture of war. We're like a war-based language, right? So think about it. Just think about it for a second. What other group 
uses the word campaign. FYI, it's the military, right? Like it's the military. Also targeting. Targeting. And marketing, right. Yeah. Targeting. Like when Well, and then there's politics, which is another whole realm of right. bottom feeders. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So so we're we we have yeah. this language, right? Like the and like we like for things to go viral. Okay, the last time something went viral was like we put virus on a blanket and handed it to people. Like this is not something you want to emulate. This is these are bad words to use. We but it's like, don't like scattershot, Liz. We don't right? like scattershot in right? marketing. It's it's spraying command and control. All of it is language that comes from a really dark and dirty place, right? And so when we entered this age of community and collaborate, co-creating with our customer. We were like, oh, damn, we got to figure out another way to do that. So we decided to stock them online with cookies. Like it just not, it's not really a healthy way to go about this relationship building. But I think so do that you take, we, can I just yeah. interrupt there? Do you, do you take an optimistic view on this in the sense that, do you think that this puts, sort of levels the playing field a little bit where those companies that, that are more white hat, that want to earn trust and want to do the right thing with customers' data have a little more of a level playing field against the scumbags and the data vampires and everyone who's hiding behind yeah. these cookies? Or do you think that the scumbag contingent is just going to find new ways to stalk and prowl? Like, what, what is both. your take on that? It's it's both. The s- scumbags will always scumbag, right? Like a bro's got a bro. Like they're they're going to find a way to find new and horrible ways to turn the digital ecosystem into something that's inherently bad. Right. And and that is that is awful. I think, though, that what we're seeing are brands that are going to win because they're basing it on what the customer defines as trust and not what we have contrived to be trust is going to start using first party data in a way and using those first party cookies as collection points as a way to understand more to deliver better. Right. It's going to be that value exchange. And something that Nicole and I talk a lot about is that shift and that moment when the light goes off that everyone realizes that value and volume are not the same thing. Right. So we're going to start actually communicating and building relationships on value and not the volume at which or how wide of a net we can cast. And I think that's what's changing. I think the other reality that all of this third-party cookie information is doing is it's creating a different conversation between brands and their agencies because they're having to ask more. They're having to bring in the Adobe's, the SAP's, the Oracle's of the world to say, okay, what are we going to do now? And how do we start doing this better? And it creates a very different conversation, not only with the brand and their technology platforms, but the brand and their agencies, because the agency can't just deliver a PowerPoint that says, Yay! We did awesome this month. It was We've a great gotta start seeing campaign. Yeah. Right. We've got to start seeing different metrics. We've got to start seeing different KPIs, but we're gonna start seeing different uses. So it's not we spent your money well because of programmatic. It's gonna be we drove value better because we found a different way to use this data and find a way to communicate. So I do, I'm I'm incredibly optimistic about it. But you know, for folks that you know, like folks at Google, folks at Facebook, they're gonna fight this tooth and nail and talk about. Talk about a group that has a vested interest to make this all sound ugly and scary and dirty. This is it. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, Esteban, for dropping in. He says, uh, "Miss, this is awesome. Miss the in-person days when we had this conversation convers- in real life and drank at the same time. Um, yes, indeed. And, and obviously we'll be doing that again in the future. But my goal with this show, just a quick sort of thing, is I want to try to capture a little bit of that every week. And 
I, I probably will start keep doing it where I can, even when we're seeing each other in person. Cause I think sometimes totally. we lose, sometimes right. we lose, sometimes we lose these threads, you know? And I think that's one thing that really has always bothered me about the so-called in real life that we idealize now is we would have a great time and, and have these fascinating conversations, but then we would leave the show and there'd be absolutely no follow through, no follow yeah. through on product, no follow through on relationship, no follow through on customer needs. So like, the idea here is to kind of keep pounding away at these things because otherwise I don't think they get fixed. And plus it's fun to hang out, you know? Um, so I anyhow. like it. Uh, so before we wrap up, I do want to hit on a couple things. Um, this was uh, a blogs that matter uh, episode or blogs that if you didn't read them, you're an idiot. Uh, blogs <laughs> that stick in my craw. Um, a, a, a couple, uh, well, it was a little more than a year ago, Liz, you wrote marketing didn't get too authentic by accident. Um, I'm going to paste the link in cause it's been a while in case people don't know how to use a search engine. I'll put it in there. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you about a couple things here because I think it ties into our conversation. Um, as we enter the age of authentic marketing, that's a, that's a big, big mouthful of a phrase. Tell us about authentic marketing. So, you know, I, I, I define authentic marketing as, the, as that moment when marketers and CMOs in particular stand up and realize that we're not the coloring in department, we're not the ad group, we're the group that's driving growth, right? We are, we are intentionally and purposefully building relationships with our customers, our partners, our internal constituents that are purpose built to be profitable and durable. That's what we do. That's that's marketing, right? And I think for a long time, we've been asked to apologize for that. We've been on this like really lengthy apology tour where we have to stand up in front of everybody and be like, I'm really sorry. I added new tools. I'm really sorry. I created this campaign. Yes, I spent money on the. It's this been this really exhausting apology tour that we've been on. And authentic marketing is more about understanding and admitting and being okay with the fact that, yeah, we dig data, we get a lot of intelligence from it, but we're also wildly creative, right? And it's and it's okay for marketing to admit that we're wildly creative, that we do these crazy things with words and graphics and pictures, and it all comes together thanks to data, and that's okay. We've had to apologize for our creative side for so long that now... It's about authentic marketing. It's not about the shticks. It's not about the, I'm going to chase the fancy, shiny new toy. You know, it's it's about getting back to the job of growing durable, profitable relationships and not apologizing for it and just doing what we do. I, I got to like say, the thing, the thing about that one that I find most fascinating is, and, and this is a little bit from firsthand experience too, I think what's absolutely happened is that we've gone hard over to this idea that if you don't understand metrics and marketing, you can't be successful. And I think that is true to a large degree, but you know, that almost comes at the exclusion of recognizing that some of the best campaigns and some of the best marketing strategies out there have just been great creative ideas about how to get to an audience that no amount of data and analytics would have ever told you because Data tells you an awful lot, but it's not just going to give you the answer. And it's certainly not going to come up with something creative that maybe no one's tried before. Yeah. And, 
you know, Liz, I just think you're right on the money with that. That's the reason why a whole lot of people go into marketing. It's to use those those creative skills and that great creative thinking, but to do it in a way that that actually does something productive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I, I, I like these concepts and I, I've noticed how much marketers like their shiny tools and their shiny analytics. And We're mad I, guys. Guess my, I, I guess my only question would be like, what do you, what exactly are you measuring? Um, because most of the content you're putting out is so crappy that you're basically measuring crap. Um, right. And, yeah. right. So, and, and then you, and, then you measure the velocity of the crap. Like, did I get the crap, crap to go faster? Yeah. You know, you're yeah. like, Oh yeah. Right. And, and, and just to use one really interesting uh, pandemic example that I found fascinating. So, you know, I, I follow a lot of music and I'm on a lot of bands email lists. So to your point, they have my data, but only one of those bands, a band called scars on 45, which is kind of a modern take on Fleetwood Mac sort of, um, but it's a duo right now. Use the data started putting on regular zoom based concerts, which have been absolutely fantastic, intimate, interesting, they're making money. They're putting it towards their album. They're the only band that actually used the data creatively during the pandemic. Mm. So my whole thing, if you're right about marketers, I would say prove that you're creative. You're, you're saying right. we are wildly creative. Well, then prove it. Because for the most part, what I hear is measurement. And and then I think they're measuring the wrong things, but that's a different conversation. But yeah. but, but But prove you're creative. That would be my challenge to marketers. But anyway, I, I like your concepts there. I, I, I totally agree with you, John, because I think, and I, I think here's the scary thing for me is I look at like Nicole and I, like, you know, our generation of marketers were like, we had to do everything like coming up as marketers, you did everything, right? You had to be involved in everything. You got a little taste of everything. There's this weird generation of marketers kind of that, that aren't like the young ones that have just come up. They're in the middle, right? They're the manager director level. And they kind of got to just focus in on one thing, right? The specialist, right? These Central are the kids channel. that- like yeah these are the kids that were like when you first interviewed them they were like well i'm a social strategist and you're like "Eh," like i gotta mm, like i'm gonna hit pause on you for just a second and i think the reality is is that it's the marketers who are like no i'm just a digital marketer okay great you're a digital marketer that's awesome you understand those channels but do you understand foundationally that marketing's job is to look at revenue relationships and reputation it's not about the P's. It's not about the place. It's not about the product. It's not about those people who've decided to add a P called people and physical evidence. I hate all of you people that do that. But it's about if marketing's job is to drive three things, go drive those three things and you get to be creative while you're doing it. And, you know, like I always I always chuckle because it's something that my dad told me when I was a kid, which was a lion doesn't have to roar to prove she's a lion. She's just a lion. Like, just go be a lion. And I think we've spent so much time having to stand in front of our boards and prove that we understood metrics and numbers. And yes, as a marketer, I can add. I don't just color things in. I'm not just the PowerPoint team. We spent so much time doing that. We forgot how to roar as a marketer. I like Brian's point. I think it goes along with creativity is empathy. And he says data won't replace an empathetic CMO that gets out there and intensely talks the customer's hey, prospects. By, by the way, there is no substitute at all for talking directly to customers. And one they of know. my, I mean, this is probably a whole separate show, but one of my <laughs> biggest pet peeves is how few people in most marketing organizations actually talk to real life customers frequently and regularly. Yeah. It's astonishing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I, mean, I always I dare marketers, I, I dare CMOs to just spend 
an hour. Don't just spend 15 minutes in your customer call center. I did it. I was with a I was with a beauty product and I would pick up the phone and I would say like once a week I would carve out an hour and the calls would get routed towards me and one day I got to answer a call from a very irate customer who swore that the product she bought was not working. And I got to utter the best phrase of my career being, uh, ma'am, uh, that's a topical. You don't drop that in your orange juice in the morning. So like, bless her heart, she had been putting, because she thought vitamin C was something you put in your orange juice. So she'd been taking her $100 serum and dropping it into her OJ every day instead of slathering it on her face. But you don't get to hear things like that that are happening from your customer if you sit in the ivory tower of, I got a report on that. Right. You, yeah. you don't get to hear that people didn't understand the directions. Maybe we should go address that. Like, wow, light bulb moment, you know. Yeah. But I, I think that what ends up happening is we rely on the spreadsheet as the source of our data. And we forget to Nicole's point that the second party who is involved in this relationship is the customer. <laughs> like that. It's like it's that that thing over there. But, you know, I, I just think that the reality here is. And I, I love Brian's point. I, I empathy too. is never empathy is never going to get replaced by an Excel spreadsheet. But I think that again, when we talk about that pendulum swinging in marketing, we swung from being like Mad Men. We're all about creative. We, you know, we we you can't be as creative as us because we're marketers. And then the pendulum swung all the way to the other side, being we know metrics. We're gonna we're gonna thrill and amaze you with all of the different percentages of increase that we had over voice. Like we are going to make up likes as a metric, right? And I think now we're beginning to normalize. We're, we're beginning to come in the middle and we're realizing that what is true and authentic about marketing is that we're both of these halves. Like we love to talk about the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain. It's still a brain. Like, yep. it, you know, like it, it, you didn't leave the brain kids just because we got two sides of it. Yeah, and there's more in your post on how marketing metrics have lost their meaning uh, right. and, and the obsession with vanity metrics, but we're starting to run out of time, so I guess I'll just have to have you guys back again, which works out great for me because I can kind of take the show off, which is pretty nice. <laughs> I, I, I can just kind of just chill here and relax, which is I don't cool. I don't think that conversations with Liz and Nicole have ever been described as a vacation before, John, but we'll take it. Hey, man, yeah. I'm, sur I'm surfing the waves today. Um, so... <laughs> But I do have, I, I promised the hard question. Now here it comes. Uh, you guys agree on a lot of stuff when it comes to the enterprise. What Give give us something you disagree on. Oh, man. There's I gotta struggle be something. with this one. I, we talked about this before, okay. too, Sean. And we were like, shit, can we make one up? Like, I we're like, I, there's, there's got to be something you disagree on. Come on. I don't think we found it yet. But I, but I will say, and, and, and I'm borrowing Liz's words here for this one. So Liz can probably say it again better than I can. But what is fascinating is we do come at a lot of these issues from very different perspectives. Yeah. Right. But we almost always get to the same place. And we we share our reasoning and how we got there. And we, you know, we might have different observations and we might have slightly different thought processes, but you know, ultimately, I think we, I don't think we've come up with an example of anything we that we disagree on. Other than using magicians in any type of scenario that, that we disagree on. Like Nicole's okay with magic and I'm not, I'm not. But I want yeah, to point I was out, gonna, I was going to, I was going to ask. Here, no magic tricks. No magic tricks. tricks, but no magic tricks. Yeah. I see. But you don't, you don't mind magic tricks then. 
I don't mind. I don't mind managing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say we have to go. We'd have to go outside the enterprise to get a disagreement for on the two of you. I'm sure you have a couple non-enterprise disagreements. I I default to Oxford comma. I'm passionately pro Oxford comma. Liz, Liz is not, and she, you know, she very tactfully doesn't say that very often, but. I, like I let it slide. Comma. Like I know, I know the Oxford comma is important to Nicole, so I'm like, yeah, okay, fine, there we go. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, but that's probably about it, and that is probably yeah. the one thing that we we most mushrooms significantly mushrooms. disagree on. Yeah. Nicole, oh, Nicole mushrooms. Yeah. mushrooms. Yeah, I won't. Mm-mm. Don't put them on pizza. They're an abomination. They taste like dirt. Stop it. Yeah, I guess we could probably find some disagreements, maybe as far as things like. Uh, do both of you like stand-up comics in your enterprise keynotes? Do you like celebrity keynotes? Do you like motivational speaker keynotes? We could probably find some disagreements there. Not on the motivational Maybe. speaker one. Yeah, I don't, like, I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. You like, ooh. We do, although Nicole and I have perfected the um, texting to each other during live events. So we can, like, we can text and look real busy, but really what we're saying is like, oh my God, are those... Did he really say that? <laughs> yeah. Is there an exit really divide? Can we get out of here? Yeah. Right. Occasionally, but yeah. Yeah. So, so you do, you disagree on mushrooms though. I think I heard. Yeah, that's true. So that, yeah. that's, Nicole that's likes potentially, them. but in a weird way, that's actually a good thing because then when you're like at events and there's like a mushroom platter, then it's all good. Oh, hers. This is yeah. going for the other crew to take. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm in on the other stuff. Like, yeah, no, she's yeah. She can have the mushrooms. It's fine. Yeah. We're good with that. All right. Well, I'm glad and we'll we always share a drink. We'll always share a lemon drop with Sandy. So it's fine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, if you do find a genuine disagreement, then let me know. And we'll do a special show. We <laughs> might actually have to write a big idea about that. Can yeah. You we'll do like a big idea paper. We actually yeah. found a disagreement. <laughs> we'll dedicate a whole show to how we fought over it. It'll be awesome. Brian, like, Brian. You know, t- tug of war might be involved, you know? I mean, who knows? Why don't ERP vendors care about their CX and massively negative NPS scores? Oh, God. I don't know, even know where to break that one down. Should I'm, we start with the word NPS score or should we go backwards? Like, I don't even know where to start. I'm glad Esteban's not here right now. I'm just going to say that. I know. Um, Brian, we may have to dissect this further in a future episode when you're when you're on. That's but uh, would, you, would you like right to... There. Would you like to trash NPS scores before we go or? Uh... Oh God. Can we please find something better than NPS? And I, I know, I know it's not ever going to die because it's not hard to measure and you can see how it changes over time. But I just, I, I think it's again, meaning, it's, it is, it is, it is meaningless. Like, I, okay, great. Everyone hates you. Cause your service sucks. Like no one wants to recommend you. You bite, but if you don't have a strategy in place on how to actually change your NPS score to actually do something about it, like Sprint had a negative NPS score. What did they go do? Not much. They put out yeah. a bunch of ads, how everyone was satisfied with them. And then guess what happened? People started answering better on their NPS score. They didn't fundamentally change anything that people were pissed about. You know, so it just, it is NPS. It's, it's a lovely score to have. And and it's great if you want to quiet your shareholders down and say, no, people would recommend us. We're awesome. Our NPS score, great. But unless you have a strategy to actually change it, like I don't, I don't want to hear it. I don't. I well, here's don't. the thing: like middle of the road. Like you know, most companies are pretty middle of the road. I know. 
Do you answer those? Happy being middle of the road. Oh my God, Nicole, do you skew those NPS scores? Like when you get the survey, are you like, nah, one star, like, haha, good luck with your next NPS meeting, everyone. I don't, I don't when there's like an individual agent involved because. Oh yeah, that's me. So, so yeah. So part of the problem too is how is the system gained? And it's clearly gained. Well, that, and there's a fundamental truth in customer satisfaction, scores, surveys, anything. And here it is. There are only two types of people that actually take those surveys, incredibly <laughs> pissed people or incredibly happy people, right? It's no one in the middle, no one in the middle that could actually give you like any type of signal that would be worthwhile for change is filling out that damn little car. Oh, no, did Liz freeze? Oh, we lost it. I'm lost just, I'm going to fill it in. Oh, while you suck. You know, they're filling it out. No one else. I think I know is, what she was going to say. So it's kind of perfect. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's a good point. That elusive, indifferent customer. So difficult. well, I will, I will just circle back to one of Brian's other comments here that data struggles to document experiential issues. And that, you know, especially where a product or a vendor is failing, that is true, but there's a really, really big exception. And that is all of the verbatim conversations that you get in the contact center. And what is interesting is there really are some very good tools now on the market that can assess and parse out what's happening in those conversations and actually identify trends. And you can go and listen to the actual conversation. You can hear the point at which a customer says something. You can hear the context around that. And those to me are just so powerful and not anywhere near widely enough used because that that is the gold mine. That do you is think the they, do you think they replay conversations like, oh man, you got to listen to this one. This, you know, yes, this one's but a wait, classic. Wait, wait, wait. But there are like five people that do that amongst themselves for entertainment value as right. opposed to this being shared widely across. Right, the right. The sentiment that. analysis is the yeah. key there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that QuickBooks enjoyed some of the recent ones for me. Um, <laughs> so... So this yeah. is when John, you could you could record the second party data of your call. Ah, the second party yeah. data, absolutely. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. No. I like it. I'll do no, a little second party. You. There was a great webinar a, a little while back that I that I was that I was telling Nicole like, oh my god, you have to hear because it was like a Zendesk webinar and they they actually played recordings of customer service calls that went into whisk a whiskey manufacturer, like. What happens when a whiskey brand puts their 800 number on the back of the label? Well, two o'clock in the morning, when you're super drunk, you're like, let me call this 800 number. And the calls are hysterical. But they're like, one guy called and was like, I hate this. This whiskey didn't work. And then two seconds later, like he hung up and he called back and was like, woo, I love your whiskey. Like they just, (laughs) these calls are hysterical. But there's a guy at the brand whose job it is to listen to all the calls, right? And they made coasters out of it, which was I thought was epic. With like drunk writing, it was perfect. With drunk writing, yeah, it was really good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we're starting finally to get to diminishing returns. It took us an hour and fifteen minutes, but we're yeah, finally we made it, it there. Uh, round of applause. <laughs> well done. Well done. This lived up to my expectations. Thank you both. That was really fun. Oh, uh, thank you, John. Was a blast. Very interesting. And maybe we will do an encore at some point and looking forward to the Liz and Nicole show, which is long rumored and may someday surface. Yeah. What we're, we're tentatively calling it shooting the shit with Liz and Nicole. 
Excellent. Yeah. One of these days we'll do it. Catch you guys. Have a great weekend. Take care. Thanks.